You're listening to The World Is Just A Book Away podcast. I'm James Owens, founder and CEO of The World Is Just A Book Away, a nonprofit organization on a mission to promote literacy and education by developing libraries and programs in disadvantaged communities around the world. For more information about The World Is Just A Book Away, please visit www.wejaba.org. That's W-I-J-A-B-A dot org. Our guest today on the World is Just a Book Away podcast is Crispina French, artist, educator, environmentalist, and a friend of mine since the seventh grade. Crispina is best known for her wonderful products of clothing, carpets, blankets, made completely from recycled clothing. In our podcast, Crispina discusses the waste generated by fast fashion and the clothing industry in general, how we can learn more about what we can individually do to make a difference with our clothing in terms of recycling it and thinking about our buying decisions, and also the importance, of course, that reading and books have played in her life and her journey. To learn more about Crispina French, you can visit www.crispina.com. That's C-R-I-S-P-I-N-A.com. I am delighted to have as our guest today, Crispina French, who is an artist, educator, and environmentalist, and who also happens to be one of my oldest friends, friends since seventh grade. Welcome, Crispina. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be with you today. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. And I, when I'm connected to someone who I interview on the podcast, I like to tell the listeners how... I know the person. So I wanted to share my first memories of you. And Crispina and I, uh, our school districts joined when we were in seventh grade, and we're both from the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. And Crispina, what I remember about you first is that your first name is, is Crispina, not Christina. I'd never met a Crispina. Second, that your last name is French, spelled with two small Fs instead of a capital letter. I'd never seen that before. Uh, Third, that both of your parents were artists, which I thought was super cool. This was in seventh grade. And then you told me that your grandfather was Lord French, who lived in a castle in Ireland. And I thought that was just the (laughs) coolest thing I'd ever heard. (laughs) Oh, thanks. It's just, my kids... I think it's really funny too, like my, that they're, you know, my dad, their grandpa grew up in a castle and it's sort of like this fairy tale existence in their mind. And I'm sure it was actually kind of like that in real life too. And, and your family, and, and I think that was pretty much known throughout the Berkshires was, or Southern Berkshires at least was incredibly creative. Your, uh, the artwork of both of your parents and as well as your sisters. So can you tell us a little bit about how that played a role in your life and what you do today. So yeah, like you said, my mom and dad were artists and they were actually the art teachers at the public high school where we went. So I went to art school and um, 
I had a really hard time in school. I, I really struggled a lot in that environment. And I remember when we were at the age where everybody was applying to college, I was really kind of at loose ends and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And my mother, God bless her, filled out my college application and helped me get my um, submissions in with all my, the you know, going to art school, you have to like do a project and like there, I can't even remember now what they were. Um, actually I can, we, I made a globe and it was called Crispina's world instead of Christina's world, which, you know, it was a kind of fun play on words. And, you know, although I'm not Andrew Wyeth, <laughs> the, um, it, came out really cool and it and it had it was kind of decoupage with all the different things that I was like really interested in and um places I had been it was it was uh my version of of a world globe which is kind of interesting when I think back on that and realize that I'm I'm kind of um really interested in the globe and the planet and how we as humans walk on the planet so I had that kind of artistic upbringing where my parents were really excited about me going to art school. And when I got to art school, I realized that that was sort of a gift in itself. There were so many people who I went to school with whose families were like really not sure about their choosing that path. My, that was celebrated by my family. And then when, you know, after I went to art school, I, I took a couple semesters off during my school education because I wasn't really school oriented. It wasn't really a, like I said earlier, it's not, it's not, um, it wasn't easy for me to learn in that kind of setting. So I went out to the West coast of Canada and did a couple of semesters with a production hand weaver as an apprenticeship. That kind of gave me a business sense that I didn't get at art school. It also allowed me to kind of travel away from where I was familiar. I went to school in Boston and I grew up, like you said, in the Berkshire. So it's just a quick two and a half hour drive and traveling outside of that little circle showed me a world that I was, uh, I was adventuring into on my own. I had done a lot of traveling as a kid with my family, but never to that part of the world. So the art from my mom and dad and and also their sense of adventure. They were both pretty um, experienced world travelers throughout their lives. So I think that I got both of those things from them. And I still, you know, I, I do, I'm an artist as a profession and I, I also really enjoy traveling. And today I, in fact, I have your website open as we're talking and for the listeners, uh, Crispina has a very, once you know her name is Crispina, a very easy to remember <laughs> website. It's crispina.com, C-R-I-S-P-I-N-A.com. And Thanks. you uh, you make these amazing blankets and uh, vests and rugs out of recycled clothing. Tell us a little bit about that there was a period of time in my life where I really thought my parents were jerks. And I think that was just because I was a teenager um, in hindsight. But at the time I was just like perplexed by their decision-making. And that was around me applying to college. I really wanted to go to Rhode Island school of design, which um, I got accepted to, but I wasn't, I couldn't attend there because my parents just flatly said they weren't going to pay for it because it was quite expensive. And they, they had raised me thinking that I was poor so when I went off to Boston, to Massachusetts College of Art and Design, which is the only state art school in the country and costs the same as a community college, I realized that I was far from, I, I thought I was poor. I went to college and I was like, oh my goodness, like I am so very privileged. I have, I mean, oh my gosh, like I went to, P, to school with people who were actually poor, who like 
whose families, you know, everyone in their extended family scraped all of their resources together to help this one kid go to college. So I got really, I was really kind of upset with my parents. And I thought, you know, that's just ridiculous. Like you, you, you waste me with this big lie, right? Like I, I don't want your money. You're poor. Please don't give me your money because you need it. And I paid for myself to go to college, which like I said, was not a huge stretch because it was really not that expensive. Um, and I got grants. I got a couple of Pell grants before Ronald Reagan took over and got through school. You know, I worked hard. I worked three jobs and I went to school full time. And during my college education, I started making work for, I was a 3D fine art with a concentration in fibers. So I was, um, there was a felting artist who came to mass art and she did a day long workshop and taught us how to make handmade felt. And I love the texture of the felt. I really didn't enjoy the process. It's like a very wet and cold process. And I got into it enough to like make a few pieces that I, you know, the texture and the finished thing was cool, but the process I didn't love. And my dad said to me one time, he said, you know, Crispina, you could get the same texture if you just um, machine wash and dried wool sweaters, shrink them on purpose. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's such a great idea. Like I, it removes all of the, on the part of the process that I really don't like. It allows me to have this wide open palette of any color that I can find at the Goodwill. And, uh, holy moly, what a great thing. Right. So, so, um, my dad and I would go trundling off to any thrift store we could find and buy all the wool sweaters in whatever color we were, you know, I was at the time, my palette was like super bright and like, you know, the brighter and stripier and more polka dots, the better. So um, that's kind of how I got started with it. And when I was at school, I made these little stuffed toys called ragamuffins. And I sold them at a store in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that was a cooperative store, there were 70 different craft artists that sold their work at the store. And I really think that that experience um, was in addition to the apprenticeship I did for the production hand weaver kind of gave me a, a little foot up with the business side of things. Cause I really didn't learn that at art school. And it also enabled me to earn money from my work while I was at school. So I, you know, I made the stuffed toys, but I also made all kinds of other stuff that I would make. I would bring it to my review for school, get graded on it. And then I haul it right over to the store and sell it. And when my senior thesis project came around, there was a bit of an issue because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have any work. And they were like, well, where's all your work? And I was like, I sold it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, that, that didn't go over all that well. Cause you know, there was also this huge discussion around, you know, is it craft or is it art? And I never really cared too much about how people wanted to label it. Um, but there were, you know, it's it, for some reason crafts were bad and art was good, but at any rate, I graduated mass art and, um, I applied to do this American craft council show, which was in West Springfield, Massachusetts. And my mom encouraged me to try, you know, just apply and see if you can get in. And, um, I got in and I sold $25,000 worth of my work at that one show. And I came home. That was in, I think that was in, I can't remember now the timing. I think it, it was like late summer after I graduated in May. I can't, honestly, I don't remember, but, so I came home and quit my waitress job and I was just like, I, you know, focused on making the product to fill those orders. And within two years after that, that show, I had 40 employees and I was supplying stores all over the country and in Europe and Japan and Canada. 
and um, all made, you know, handmade recycled sweaters, um, home furnishings, not just sweaters, but all kinds of clothing, accessories, home furnishings, kids stuff. Like I was in the furniture market. I was in the, in the, um, the apparel trade and also in the kids market. And it was really, I was doing 12 trade shows a year. It was this huge, exciting, like amazing time where every year my sales were doubling and um, it was nobody had ever seen anything like what I was doing at the time. So it kind of just like snowballed. And, you know, one day somebody said to me, well, how about a business plan? Do you have a business plan? I'm like business plan. What's that? Like I had never really planned any part of my business. It just kind of like organically grew from like these little stuffed toys that I sold into this giant business. And, um, you know, like I said, employing lots of people and um, generating a ton of revenue and never, I mean, there was a lot of revenue running through my business. I never really made a whole ton of money. And um, over the years I did that for that business started in 1989. And in, in 2008, I kind of shifted my um, business from a large volume production company to a smaller business where I was actually a lot more creative my dad said to me one morning as I was going off to work, like in late 2007, he said, what are you going to make in the studio today? And I thought about it and I thought, I'm going to make phone calls and write emails. And I would much rather be making product and designing things and figuring out how to use waste that's out there in the world than doing all this administrative stuff that I was really focused on. So um, with his impetus, I kind of switched gears a little bit and just um, kind of reverted back to my roots. And that path has been pretty consistent since 2008, where it's I have a small team. There's five of us. We work together. And um, in addition to the textile recycling business that I run, I also run a business called the Dolphin Studio, which is a family-run um, screen printing business that my parents founded in 1970 that I run with my sister. And we make our kind of signature product as a calendar that's pretty well known in the Berkshires. And uh, so I kind of I kind of tag team it with the two businesses and um, all five of us who work together do the same. Like we all kind of work for both businesses kind of back and forth. So it's it's pretty fun. And it's a really it's a really great um, lifestyle. I, I have a lot of flexibility and freedom in my schedule and I'm able to develop new um, kind of pathways for recycling, which is really what I love. I like to work with large volume textile waste generators and help them figure out how to turn their waste into streams of revenue for their businesses. So that, that brings me to, well, two things come up from what you're saying for me that, that are very interesting. First is you're clearly, and this is uh, why I find you inspirational and you and I really mostly communicate through Facebook, but um, we communicate back and forth. Uh, that your message is very inspirational. You you followed your dream, and I think that's a very important yeah. message for our listeners, that it's okay to follow your dream and you don't know where it will go. And then this big business happened, which probably would have yeah. kept on growing, but you again, you you followed your heart. And, and what I'm hearing is that that wasn't really speaking to your heart and your creativity. And you chose you chose to downsize your business and uh, be involved yeah. more with the elements you love, which I think is a really beautiful story for everyone to hear. 
it's funny, you know, like at the time it just, it was actually a pretty like stressful time for me, like making that transition. I, because I employed people and it was so hard for me to think like, oh my gosh, all these people have their lives around what I do. Like they buy their groceries, they support their families. I, I honestly, of the 40 people, I think 35 of them were like women who were supporting kids on their own, you know, and it was such a hard choice to just say like, I need to make myself a priority and not do this anymore. And, you know, I, there was a lot of kind of undulation and management and change. Like I tried different things before I got to a place where I was like, okay, yeah, this is really needs to stop. I, I tried to hire people to run like the business part of things. And, you know, I had people who had worked for me for 15 years leave because the management wasn't the same style that I had. And it was, um, it was pretty stressful, but definitely like in the long run, I feel like I was able to contribute to like a lot of women that like my employee, one of the things that I really miss, I think the thing I probably missed the most about employing people was seeing the transition and somebody who came to work for me to feeling empowered and feeling like they had a worth, a worth in the world and that they were actually employable and like really worthy, you know? And I think this is going back to like 1989 before like the I'm enough thing happened or the me too thing happened where, you know, women are acknowledged for whatever kind of mistreatment they might've had or degradation they might've experienced. And, you know, I mean, I just think back to the, you know, people who never smiled, people who didn't have any teeth, you know, and they, they uh, got teeth and started smiling. <laughs> and that was like, that was like better than any recycling I could do just to see that transition. Um, yeah. And that's a, and and that's then, a huge difference because we grew, we grew up in an area that has both uh, people of extreme wealth really, and people yeah. who are not very well off at all. And yeah, it's in, in a very small region. Um, Crispina, I want to transition yeah. the, the conversation a little bit to, I see on your website that the, the United States, you have a quote by the council of textile recycling, the council for textile recycling, that the U S uh, generates an yeah. average of 25 billion pounds of textiles per year, which is 82 pounds yeah. per person. And only 15% of that gets recycled and 85% of it goes into landfills. And, and so I'm really, um, and I, I'm determined uh, one day in the near future to have one of your blankets in my house. Um, you make these beautiful awesome. blankets and these beautiful products, uh, looking at one that has hearts on it. How, what, how, first of all, where, just a, sort of the quick answer, where do you get the clothes that you recycle? And then how, how long does it take you to make something like a blanket from recycled clothing? Um, okay, so I buy the materials that I use today from Salvation Army, Goodwill, wherever thrift stores I go to. Um, back when I was running my production company, I bought tractor trailer loads of used wool sweaters from first it was from Texas and then it was from Italy. And when I started importing sorted wool sweaters from Italy that have been generated in our country. <laughs> I thought this is not that green. This need, you know, that, that was part of my decision actually to change the way I was running my business. Um, so to answer your question about how long it takes me to make a blanket, my kind of, um, craft show answer to that question is 
54 years, um, which is how <laughs> <Right>. old I am. <laughs> right, me too. And the, uh, <laughs> the reason I say that is because um, it's, you know, I've developed this process that I use to make blankets that is um, called, it's like an inlaying process. So like where, if you, if you visit my website and look at the blankets, you can see like there's shapes that are cut out of the surface and rather than um, being appliqued on top, they're actually inlaid. So the blanket looks the same on the front and the back. Mm. And so basically the process works like this. I collect my material and then I machine wash and dry it. And I need to shrink the material enough so that when I cut it, it doesn't unravel. So that's why the material I use needs to be either like it needs to be an animal fiber. So like wool or cashmere or alpaca. And then um, when it shrinks enough to cut it, I cut squares and then sew those squares together and, and lay the shapes inside. So if I'm, if I have everything cut and ready to sew, I can make a blanket in a day, but there's a lot of process that happens before they're cut. That's like the fun part that I like love to do. I could sit on a sewing machine and like sew all day for like the rest of my life and I'd be perfectly happy. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of steps. And when I make blankets like right now we're like really working hard on a huge collection of heart blankets we do that every year after the holiday season we just like make all these heart blankets for valentine's day and, and um so we make them in batches you know like we we have kind of like a steps of the process happening with a bunch of things at the same time um and it's it's super fun and it's really you, you can kind of um imagine all like one of the things I like to do, one of the blankets I make has four hundred and twenty-one squares in it. And I imagine four hundred and twenty-one sweaters that were made by four hundred and twenty-one different people somewhere along the line. Maybe it was in Bangladesh or maybe it was grandma knitting in Kentucky or wherever. And then you imagine there's those sweaters got worn by somebody. So you're thinking about all these people that came together and to make this blanket. And it's kind of like, um, I feel like it's a really strong message or it's my message to what I feel like needs to really happen globally is like, we all just need to know that we're actually just one tiny little square of like something big and beautiful. And I feel like our culture right now is so ridden with like fear and anxiety and like anger that we kind of lose track of the fact that, you know, everybody has real goodness to them. And um, if they wear wool sweaters, <laughs> the goodness is even greater in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I'm looking, I'm looking at a blanket now on your website that has 30 squares. And I had never thought of it that way before that this really is from, you know, 30 different people or 30 different manufacturers or more. And the connectiveness yeah. of everything, which I think is beautiful. And it's, it's one of the reasons I wrote, um, I, I created The World is Just a Book Away, the book, um, in looking at how books link people in life. So I want to transition the conversation, um, because this podcast is about books, reading, and life from people from all walks of life to ask you what importance reading has played in your life when you were little and what, what importance it plays now or what role it plays now. It's funny. I love books and I do a lot of reading and I had a really hard time learning how to read as a kid. I had like a super, like in 11th grade, 
they finally realized that I had some like a learning disability. 11th grade. <laughs> oh my God. For 12 years, I sat out in the hallway and got yelled at because I didn't do my homework. And it was, you know, assumed that it was because I was being disrespectful or, or whatever, but actually I just didn't know how. So when I was a little one, my mom, I was raised without a television and um, my mom and dad read to us. That's what we did for like, you know, we didn't watch TV. So every night that's, you know, after supper, we'd clean up and then we'd read books. And um, some of my favorite books that I read as a kid were like the Louisa May Alcott books and um, the Laura Ingalls Wilder, Little House on the Prairie series, which I actually read to my kids as well. Mm. Um, and then, well, when my son was little, he was the same age as Harry Potter. And that wow. just, I think Harry Potter honestly like changed the, uh, uh, more than just a generation of readers, right? Like Harry Potter made reading cool for kids all over again, right? Yeah, I like, agree. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it would, I'm just, I mean, and I, and, I, and I, I read the whole series with Ben as he, you know, we'd wait for the next one to come out. Like, we'd just be like, okay, it's going to be out in like a week. What are we going to do? You know, we finished <laughs> the last one. And now um, my two young, I have uh, Ben and then my two younger kids, are 12 and 14 now. And my youngest Violet has read that whole series. And now she been many times and um, she's into the Percy Jackson books now, which I have not read, but um, like my mom and dad, my husband and I are really like, we love to read. And it's kind of like the kids are both old enough now where they're like, don't really want us to read to them anymore. And I'm like, well, can you read to me? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to know about Percy Jackson, you know? Um, so reading, and, and it's funny, like the, uh, my son's dad and I split up when he was a year old. That was in 1993. And uh, the first book that I ever read as an adult from cover to cover was recommended by my counselor when I was 23 years old. No, when 23 years ago. So I was like 27, 28 years old at the time. And I just remember feeling so proud of myself that I read a book from cover to cover and I understood it and I remembered it and it was something like, and I was just like, Oh my gosh, the world is just a book away. Like this, it taught me that book taught me so much on so many levels and I never stopped. I never looked back. Like I'm always reading. I've never, like I'm not a fast reader and I actually used to do a lot of driving for my work. I used to work like it was a half an hour drive each direction. And I would just listen to the books in the car every day, like, uh, you know, both directions. Um, so now I do less book listening and more book reading. And, and um, there, it's really, really, it actually books play a very important role in my life because of, you know, that first book just taught me like there's so much to learn and people have had experience that they can share, that they do share in books that help other people. Right. So that's something that I um, have never forgotten. Do you remember the name of that book you read when you were 23? Um, co-parenting families apart by Melinda Blau. Mm, powerful. Great book. Yeah. And it was like, you know, my husband, my, uh, it, he wasn't my husband, my son's dad and I were not married, but it enabled us to, um, if, if there was so much anger. I mean, co there was certain court was involved, although we were not married. Um, and we were able to parent our child in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do without that. Certainly. Yeah. And, and, sp and speaks again to the, really the power of books and, and the role they play in people's lives. 
Um, what oh, are you, yeah. What are you, are there any things, any books you're reading now that you could recommend to our listeners? Oh, yeah. I have a great book. I'm just, I just picked up a couple of days ago and I haven't, well, it's a little short book, which is great for me. Um, and it is called This America. Have you heard of this book? No. It's, it's about, well, it's written by a woman named Jill Lepore. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. It's L-E-P-O-R-E. And it's just about like our constitution and what's happening to it right now. And it's, um, it's very interesting and it's very, um, it's just, you know, I, I get kind of law. I, I, I can't listen to like the news right now. Like it just makes me so sad and it, I just can't have that. And there's not much, I, I don't feel like I can affect the ch- change on that level myself. So I opt to, um, kind of, uh, try to focus my energy on things that I feel like I do have control over, um, or can at least affect positive change with. And this woman wrote this book that just kind of spells out like what are, how our constitution was written and how it's important, you know, what, what's important about it and what's, how it's been held together over the years and what, what's going on right now. So it's a really, it's a great book. It's a great read for anybody. And it's, like I said, it's a short little book. I think it's like, um, I don't know if it's a hundred pages and it's, um, Great. I highly recommend it. And also very timely given what's going on right now, of course. Right this minute. Exactly. Today. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I also. Yeah. And then I. Go ahead. Go ahead. I I read a lot of books that are kind of like um, either business related or like mindset related. I I really um, I've been learning a lot about like psychology, I guess it would be. um, And just, you know, like sort of I guess speaks to also that book like our culturally we're like fed a lot of fear and doubt and anger and I feel like um humans are so powerful you know humans are really able to make like unfathomable global shift happen and if you look I'm thinking of Nelson Mandela and Gandhi and people you know Oprah Winfrey, people who have made huge strides and they've enabled people, other people to see things really differently. And I feel like we need to harness that right now. So I try to learn as much as I can about it. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in the vein of learning uh, about something people might not know so much about, you and I had talked about this a little bit that the, the world of recycling and, um, environmentally friendly living changes so frequently that it's not necessarily through books. It might be through websites, but are there two Mm -hmm. or three, are there two or three resources you could recommend that people could look at to learn more about more eco-friendly living or in particular about, about clothing and what we do with clothing? Um, yeah, actually it's like super duper, like amazingly exciting right now. Um, it's so interesting that you're asking me this because I just taught a workshop at Carpalo and there was a woman in my class who is, um, and she's, she's very interesting. She was a trademark attorney and she, she quit her job and went to art school and, um, <laughs> rock star, this girl, like she just blew me out of the water. She was a trademark attorney. She's probably like our age and she quit her job and started going to art school and she decided she wants to be a fashion designer and she's really interested in the whole recycling of clothing sort of vein. And she brought in a Harper's Bazaar magazine 
to the class, which is the, a fresh, like on the newsstands right now. And on the cover of the Harper's Bazaar magazine is an article all about recycling clothing. Mm. Holy moly, the hundredth monkey is clapping. It's so exciting. So <laughs> exciting. So it's just, I mean, I just, I'm so blown away by that. Like for the last, I don't know, since whatever it's been, it's so long, it's hard to imagine, but it's 30 years, 30 plus years that I've been gently educating people about how to recycle clothing and no, it's not gross. And yes, it is clean. And, you know, first, and, and now pe people, you know, there are lots of people, if you go on to Etsy.com and look up like recycled clothing, there's tons of people who are making really cool things out of clothing. And I think that's a really good place to learn. And you can also go on to, um, there's a, there's a, I guess it's kind of like a business, um, group it's called it's called smart secondary materials and recycled textiles it's like s-m-a-r-t and they have a pretty um comprehensive website about specifically textile recycling um but there's all i mean right now it's like super people are talking about it i read an article recently in um i can't i think it was in the new york times wait let me just think this through was it the new york times Anyway, there was an article about how textile waste surpass in, in, in creating like greenhouse gases, it surpasses um, all air travel mm. in the volume of textile, of um, like climate crisis gases that it generates. So yeah. that, ha you know, that's like fast fashion text, you know, it's the whole textile trade, like people who throw their stuff out, people who don't recycle it, people who are not conscientious about buying quality over, you know, people think like Walmart's cheaper and, you know, it's actually really not cheaper. It's much more expensive, but you just don't have it coming out of your pocket when you're taking the thing home with you. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, and, it's much more expensive for the planet because of the pollution effects and the, the, right, the effects on the right. environment. Right. And, and, you know, now I think people are seeing that the, the effects on the environment are actually causing health issues for people. And then, then it become becomes more easy for people to understand, you know, if they have respiratory illness and now that, you know, the fires in California and breathing the smoky air and there's people who are, you know, marginally healthy and they have to really take precautions, right? Like with all kinds of pollutants in the air um, and in the water and whatever it might be. So it's, um, I think it's totally possible. One of the things I feel like happens when I start talking about like environmentalism and textile waste and that sort of thing is people get really freaked out and they feel like panicked. Like what, I, there's nothing I can do. It's too late. Holy crap. Like, uh, well, uh, like, I'm sorry, I'm human. I fucked it up. Sorry. I just said that terrible word. <laughs> I hope you can edit that out. I think anyway. we can edit that out. <laughs> okay. Um, so they, people feel really panicked, and I feel like it's really important with everything else that we, that is going on in the world today that we don't think of this as a panic situation. It just it just needs to be an awareness building situation where, yes, you can go on the internet and learn how to recycle your clothing. There's tons of different places you can do that. Um, thrift stores are a great place to start. Um, a lot of the the textile waste that is recycled goes to all kinds of interesting industries like the paper industry and insulation and um, on and on. But now there is this movement in the fashion industry to 
create with old, you know, used clothing. Um, I did a project with Eileen Fisher a few years ago. Eileen Fisher has a um, pretty internationally recognized women's clothing line. And um, she now has a tiny factory in Irvington, New York, where they recycle all the clothing that are they take their own clothing back. So like if you buy an Eileen Fisher garment that you're no longer using for whatever reason, if it's stained or whole, or there's a hole or it's just the wrong style for you, you can bring it back to Eileen Fisher and they actually have a zero waste manufacturing company that uses all of the waste they bring in to make new garments from. So it's happening. And Crispina for the, for the average person, for our average listener listening now, what mm-hmm. what what can we e- what can people easily and tangibly do? Is it something like instead of throwing, I, I give my clothes to Goodwill. I I hope that's a good thing. Um, is that's a great that's, thing. That's a uh, great thing. Yeah, the only thing I I end up throwing away would be if I have an extra sock or something's too worn. But other than that, I take everything to Goodwill. So what what should people? What can people? What are two or three easy shifts people can make in their lives? around this uh, topic? This is a great question. Thank you so much for asking. So yes, donate your clothing to the Goodwill or Salvation Army or whatever charity shop you might have in your locale. Um, There's lots of them. In our area, it's mostly, yeah, Goodwill and Salvation Army. We have something called Savers. There's sometimes there's like cancer charity shops, whatever. Um, And it's good to think about, you know, them reselling it. So if you have one sock, they don't really want it. But if you have, you know, whatever, not wearable clothing, that's fine. And actually a lot of those places are um, set up to then recycle the single socks or the stuff that's not recycle, not resaleable. They have, um, they, they are part of a chain of, um, they're called garment graders. And so they could sell all their like clothing that has like cotton clothing that has holes go to the rag maker or the paper industry or whatever. But let me preface that all by saying that the fiber content of your clothing is really important um, for a couple of different reasons. One is natural fibers are much easier to recycle and they're also much better for your body, which um, studies show that every person who's ever been tested has microplastics in their bodies and they get there for in a lot of different ways. But one of the primary ways they get there is by wearing plastic clothing. So, um, and for the, for for the general listener, plastic clothing would be polyester, polyester, acrylic, um, uh, spandex, um, anything that's not like a plant-based material, like cotton or linen or, um, rayon is actually a plant-based fiber or, Uh, you know, polar fleece is made out of recycled plastic bottles, which that's really great that, that, that happens. It's a recycled plastic, but it's still plastic. So my thought is, um, get yourself a bottle that's not plastic to drink from and then wear wool. (laughs) Um, and I, I, I kid, but I'm, I'm actually quite serious. Um, and then, um, the other things that you can do for recycling clothing is, um, buy really good quality stuff, you know, spend a hundred dollars or $200 on a pair of jeans. I know it's a stretch, especially 
especially if you're having a hard time making ends meet. But if you buy a pair of jeans that cost you 200 bucks that are, you know, made by somebody who's making them out of really nice fabric, that's going to last you for 20 years. They're actually a lot less expensive for you than buying a pair of jeans three times a year because they rip and tear and wear out or sag and don't look nice because you bought the fast fashion variety. Um, and it's not just the, the um, longevity for you. It's also the process. Like if fast fashion oftentimes employs people at like really meager wages, they don't get really treated very well. Um, waste in other countries, like specifically Bangladesh and India are, is not dealt with like it is here. There's actually literally mountains, like mountains in Bangladesh that are all textile waste. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's avoidable. We can make a shift. We can, we can do this. Um, and when you're supporting the companies that make really good quality fabrics and really good quality clothing, generally you're supporting people who are also committed to helping the environment. Even if that's not their kind of preface, they're just making a good quality product out of nice quality material. Those are really helpful suggestions that I'm hearing by, by quality in the first place, focus on natural materials, both for the environment and for, to protect yourself from the byproducts of microplastics and then recycle your clothing whenever possible. I think those are very easy suggestions that we can, we can all implement to help reduce this horrific amount of waste that's happening on the planet. Uh, Crispina, uh, our time is running out. I just want to ask you one last question, and that's if there's anything else you'd like to add for the listeners. Well, I, I just would like to, to say that I think um, your project, your one book away, um, the world is, I'm sorry, your project, the world is just a book away, is just such an amazing um, contribution to humanity. And I feel like, you know, you, you often tell me that I'm an inspiration to you. And I just think like, I, I feel like you're such an inspiration to me and to so many people. And I'm just, um, I really encourage you just to take a step one day. Actually, I, I tell people in my classes this, take 60 seconds as soon as we're finished, 60 seconds, close your eyes and just imagine how awesome you are. Thank you, Crispina. That really means a lot to me. And, uh, and I encourage you to do the same thing <laughs> with yourself. Yeah, it's a good thing to do. And like, just think about all the things that you did right today. Just think about all the people who you, you um, interacted today and, and how you can, you know, you, maybe you smiled at the person you passed on the street, whatever. Like, just think about all the good things that happened in your life today. And it really, it does. It really helps. It helps everybody. And I think people who feel good have the ability to make really good positive impact. I think that's an excellent practice for all of us. And, uh, and, and I look forward to seeing you when I'm back in the Berkshires. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really had fun with you today. Yeah, Crispina, thank you so much. This was really great. <laughs>